Hello, everyone. This is your brief reminder that this is a re-upload of the podcast from way back in 2017. So I also remembered as editing this, there's no conversation, of course, about the Pixel remasters or any of that because we had no idea that was going to be a thing. I also wanted to apologize for some of the rough production on these early episodes. I think, ironically, kind of like the series itself, we got a lot better at making these podcasts as we went along. I did my best to deal with some of the audio issues here. You'll hear my dog in the background a couple of times. Uh, thank you for bearing with us on that. And don't forget that we have done episodes all the way up through most of Final Fantasy VII, and you can find all of that on patreon.com slash ffweekly. And for more Final Fantasy content, more Star Wars and MCU and DCEU and other video game talk, please check out patreon.com slash DC Productions. Welcome to Final Fantasy Weekly. I'm Drew Kreisman. And on this episode, my brother Ira and I continue our conversation about the plot, themes, and characters from Final Fantasy I. If you missed the first half, please check out episode two. And now, back to the conversation. So yes, now that we've got our class upgrades, we can go immediately to the town of Gaia. Named Gaia both in the original version and in the Dawn of Souls remake, and Gaia is another one of those words that we'll see over and over again. Sometimes, like in this case, it's a location, but sometimes it's in reference to an entire world. Multiple times. Sometimes it's not spoken. I believe in Final Fantasy IX, there are sister planets, Terra and Gaia. That's right, that's right. Words that mean the in same thing in different languages. That's right. In Final Fantasy VII, it is canon that the planet is named Gaia, but it's never spoken. Well, they didn't have speaking. I don't think it's ever said by any character specifically that the name of that planet is Gaia. And then, of course, famously, in the much maligned film that you and I both loved, and you better believe we're doing an episode on it at some point, Final Fantasy The Spirits Within, it, Gaia plays a huge role in, in that. I love that movie. Yeah, me too. You know we're bad nerds, right? We're not very good yeah. at being nerds. I know. We're supposed to hate the stuff that everybody else hates because it wasn't like the things they were expecting it to be like. But one of the things that growing up with this franchise and, and just talking about, you know, whether it's the changing of the character classes or the first thing with the, the seas raging while the winds are stopped, we were programmed to not have our expectations rule the day. So it's always interesting to me that people go, oh, the reason I don't, like Spirits Within was fine, but it wasn't Final Fantasy enough. It's like, what is? it? What, you know, it's got all the same themes. Yeah, it doesn't have, you know, certain characters and there are no chocobos and moogles. But beyond that, I think that's just one of those things getting back sort of on topic of our themes and away from that specific film. Just Final Fantasy is constantly reinventing itself so much that 
to say, oh, this isn't what I was expecting. People weren't expecting six to be what it was, or seven to be what it was, or eight, three in a row there, or 10 to be what it was, 15. There are some people who are like, ah, it's not as much like the old ones. This, it's not like the stuff that came before it problem is a problem some people have been having for almost 30 years now. And it's funny to me that you could be a fan of this franchise and have the problem of, well, this isn't what I was expecting. Like, yeah, that's what you came to this for, right? To get something you weren't expecting. Yeah. The phrase is, it's a feature, not a bug. Yeah, oh, that's good. That's good. I didn't I didn't come up with that. I know, but you implemented it well, and it, let me compliment you, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> well <laughs> implemented somebody else's phrase. The next thing we're trying to do is get to the sea shrine, but the sea shrine is underwater, and we are, after all, only human. But in Gaia, aside from being able to get some pretty good magic and weapons and whatnot, you hear about a fairy, and the fairy has been captured by a guy in a desert caravan, who in the original version looks like an unfortunate Arabic stereotype, which is too bad. Yeah, yeah. As we were talking earlier, off-air, off do we say air? Yeah. As we were talking earlier, off-air, there are some potentially weird, if not downright bad, ethnic stereotyping here and there in Final Fantasy. Not so much that it turns me off to the franchise entirely, but enough to give some discussion to. I think that we might have a podcast about it later on. Yeah, I think we should probably do a, a whole episode on that. You know, there's nothing better than listening to two middle-class white guys talk about race and ethnicity in the arts. So, <laughs> Oh, no. We're going to be bad at that but, conversation, too. We we will do our best to handle that, but in the meantime, just point out those instances between here and there. There are some culturally strange things about, you know, the Japanese country does not have the same history with African-Americans or with Muslims that the United States does. And so there are times I think sometimes our American sensibilities will go, oh, that's racist or, oh, that's insensitive, whereas the Japanese will be like, well, that's just we weren't trying to be insensitive. That's just how in cartoon world, those types of people are drawn without realizing that there is maybe a racist history behind that. You know, they're drawing on, on maybe an American cartoon style. I don't know what was going on there with this particular character, but yeah, unfortunate, but I'll say, I guess for now, before we ever get into that episode, I don't believe for one second that the creator's uh, and writers and directors and producers of Final Fantasy are in any way racist. I mean, every single one of their games is about coming togetherness and, and equality and the importance of humanity as a, a, there's a kind of oneness of humanity. Yeah. And oftentimes villains and heroes are two sides to the same coin. So it really doesn't strike me as a group of storytellers who are interested in otherization of any kind. But that's a conversation for another day. Get us back on track with buying fairies, man. <laughs> yeah, so you can buy uh, a fairy, the captured fairy, from the dude in the desert caravan. You can release the fairy back to her natural spring in the middle of a forest, and then she will give you the Oxile, which in the Nintendo Power Strategy Guide from 1990 is a cup full of water that seems to be effervescent. Mmm. Either way, yeah. that allows you to go to the city of Onrak, where you will hear, this is again some more foreshadowing, uh, you will hear about mermaids and robots and UFOs, and you'll also meet uh, a guy who's related to a guy named Dr. Un, all of which will become important later. 
But for the moment, the most important part here is you can use the submarine in the town of Onrak to dive down to the sea shrine where you can use your oxile to breathe underwater. And now we've got another elementally themed dungeon, at the end of which is the third fiend, the fiend of water, Kraken. Yeah, we've also got more combining elements. We've got a submarine technology. We've got magical underwater breathing device. Something we would see throughout the series. It's funny, I almost felt like when they made Final Fantasy X, they must have just like a huge part of the <laughs> the inspiration to do that. would be like, you know, in this game, instead of having an underwater breathing apparatus or some device that you and Gao and Cyan need to go find and yeah. swim through the trench or whatever else, shiny. let's just have certain characters, the shiny, Go and find the shiny. No, no in, in 10, there's like, let's just have our characters breathe underwater. Because clearly Could they, they have. And it, or did they just hold their breath for a long time? I'm pretty sure they can just, there are certain people who can just hold their breath for an incredibly long time. But they've adapted to underwater living. Uh, and it, it, yeah, so it's pretty clear that the, for a long time, Final Fantasy has had this infatuation with underwater existing. Yeah. I never thought of it that way. That's cool. Nicely done. Thank you. See, <laughs> so you can take a compliment. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. You notice how I didn't fight back at all. Uh, I'm such a jackass. <laughs> hey, thanks. I guess I am pretty smart, huh? <laughs> <laughs> all right, man. Uh, so, yeah, you defeat the Kraken. That's the third fiend. We're feeling good about ourselves. But now we need to get to the fourth fiend. And the fourth fiend. Take some getting to. Behind a waterfall that you hear about from a rumor from one of the NPCs that, you know, there was, a, there was a UFO and something shiny fell from the sky. So in the 1990 version, it's just called the Waterfall, and in the Dawn of Souls version, it's called the Waterfall Cavern. But you'll go through this little dungeon to investigate the UFO sighting, and at the end of it, you will find a robot. Straight-up sci-fi robot. A robot. A robot. Gary Gygax and Tolkien didn't have robots in their fantasy stories. Though, to be fair, in Tolkien, there was a, a big bit about industrialism versus nature. And, and certainly there were some hints at aliens and, and technology. Not until later was it spelled out in Dungeons & Dragons, but there were, there were definitely some hints. Yeah, some of the I, I did a little bit of research on this, and outside of the realm of comic books, it's hard to find fantasy and sci-fi that really cross over quite this heavy. One of the few other iterations I was able to find, I think a lot of people would almost consider these franchises like sister franchises in a way, and I have no idea to what extent they draw inspiration from each other other than knowing that the creators know of each other are the Studio Ghibli films, and specifically speaking, Hayao Miyazaki uh, as the writer and director of, in, in case there's anyone listening to this who doesn't know who that is, things like Spirited Away, Princess Mononoke, and something that predates the Final Fantasy franchise, Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind, where there are a, a lot of fantasy elements, but there's also this kind of ancient technology and these giant war machine robots who are no longer around, or maybe pieces of them are around. A little spoiler for, you know, near the end of that movie, that doesn't, they do come back a bit. So there is a moving and, and, and working robot by the end of that film. So it, it's pretty close. But yeah, here in Final Fantasy 1, it's just, oh, there's a robot. Like, 
it felt so out of place and yet so cool at the same time. Like, like you felt like you were getting away with something. Are we breaking the rules? Are we allowed to have robots and dragons <laughs> in the same thing? Even Game of Thrones. You know, they've got their ancient city of Valyria. They've got maybe some surviving technology from that time and like swords and stuff like better made steel. But we're talking about a robot. <laughs> right. The technological levels in these Final Fantasy games do range from the medieval to the advanced. And and it is, again, one of the fascinating things to me. So the robot will give you the cube. At least that's what yeah. they call it in the, uh, the 1990 version. To, to, go, to, to get into Tron, right? <laughs> uh, in this case, no. It is to be used at the top of the Mirage Tower, which we will oh. get to shortly. So the next town you go to is the town of Lufin, or Lufinia in the Dawn of Souls version, and they all speak a language that you don't understand. So you got to go find Dr. Oon and give him that slab that you found down in the Sea Shrine, and he can use it, like a Rosetta Stone, to translate the Lefinish language, and then uh, you learn it very, very quickly. Uh, this is over a decade before Final Fantasy X would give you the owl bed oh, yeah. and create their own language for them and have a whole game-long kind of side quest of being able to, if you choose, put together their alphabet and learn their language. A lot of interesting cross-cultural stuff and an homage, I, I believe, to Tolkien, who quite famously invented languages for uh, uh, most specifically Elvish, but that was not the only language that Tolkien invented. And so I think without being able to fully do it in a regular Nintendo game, the Final Fantasy guys, again, early on showing you, like, we'd love to have our own invented language. And a little over a decade later, they'd get there. Okay, so I'm gonna, i got to talk about Lufinia for a moment because there's a lot of things in video games where there's sort of a hidden thing. Like in, in Super Mario Brothers, you could get on top of the underground stages. Yeah. It was there on purpose, but they didn't say, oh, by the way, here's a thing you can do. In, in Mario Brothers 3, you could hide like behind the stage if you, if you knew what to do. But you had, like, there was no internet at the time, so it was just a thing you had to either try and figure out or you had to hear about from somebody else. All throughout Final Fantasy, you gain your magic by buying it, just like you buy your items. And there is a hidden set of magic shops, the level 8 magic shops, that have the strongest white magic and black magic spells. But they're not obviously in town, and they're not, it's not obvious how to get to them from out of town. You've got to go in, up into the upper right of town and sort of cut through the wall and then go through the forest a bit, and they're, they're way out there. So if you didn't know, if you didn't have the Nintendo Power Strategy Guide, this could be a thing you would miss, and you wouldn't ever know. So that's a cool little side thing about the town of Lufinia. So after Lufinia, you make your way to the Mirage Tower. This will be another repeating motif. This is a pretty obvious, I think, homage to the Tower of Babel. It's probably not an homage, a reference. It's a pretty obvious reference to the Tower of Babel, which we would see again in later games. I think in Final Fantasy IV, they actually have a Tower of Babel, so... Uh, and from the top of the Mirage Tower, you can use that cube the robot gave you to teleport to the Flying Fortress. Now we're talking. Another common theme, flying cities, flying continents in Final Fantasy VI, flying fortress, but yeah, and again, more technology in your Final Fantasy stuff. Not necessarily done, I guess it could be done by magic, but unusual... I don't know, are there floating cities and islands and things like that in Tolkien or, not, or any of that stuff? Not in Tolkien yeah. or 
or D&D, but in Studio Ghibli. The, in the uh, 1990 strategy guide, it's called The Sky Castle, which perhaps harkens back to... Castle in the Sky. Castle in the Sky. Lapita. Those movies, if you are a fan of Final Fantasy and you have not seen the Studio Ghibli movies, you owe it yourself to do so. They are beautiful and amazing, and go do it. Yeah, it's as close as we've gotten to the Final Fantasy games in movie form. I mean, there are Final Fantasy movies, and so there there are those things as well. But, like, outside of that, anything that doesn't have the Final Fantasy name on it, I think that they're as close as you get to that same kind of feeling and experience. And speaking of which, there is Nino Kuni, a game I have not yet played, that was apparently made joint uh, Studio Ghibli Square Enix, so... Maybe we should do that, and maybe we owe it to ourselves to play that game and do a future podcast on it. Yeah, that'll be research for the podcast, right? Research. We'll, we'll, we have to research. now. We, yeah, yeah. We are required by podcast law. That's right. <laughs> so making your way through the Flying Fortress or Sky Castle, depending on your version, you will eventually find Tiamat, the Fiend of Air. However, there is this long bridge in the Sky Castle leading up to Tiamat, Again, why I'm afraid of long corridors and RPGs. Bridges and tunnels. That's a Bridges, that's a West oh, Wing yeah. reference. I didn't say I'll go ahead and do it now because I didn't say on the last one, but that the podcast is titled Final Fantasy Weekly as an homage to West Wing Weekly. And so I just wanted to throw that out there. So if one or both of us ever ends up making a few West Wing references, that that's probably gonna happen as well once in a while in this podcast. But as you were saying that bridges and tunnels that's my nightmare. That's <laughs> well, now it's my nightmare, too. <laughs> so uh, on this bridge, you can run into optional monster. And the very first time I played this game, this was another one of those things that just sold me on this type of game. Though at the time it was extraordinarily frustrating. I ran into Warmech, who was later called Death Machine in the Dawn of Souls remake. And Warmech is stronger than Tiamat. And I was I was prepared. I thought I was prepared. You know, I, I thought I was ready for this fight. <laughs> and suddenly I'm hit by this random monster who really knocked me down. Looking at the Dawn of Souls strategy guide. Though Tiamat does have 2,400 hit points and Death Machine only has 2,000, Tiamat's attack is 53 and Death Machine's is 128. Tiamat's accuracy is 80, Death Machine's is 200. They have the same defense at 80, Tiamat's agility is 36, Death Machine's is 48! 48! That's an invasion, 48. An invasion of 96 compared to Tiamat's 72. This is an early... Emerald Weapon stuff right here, but another early establishment of a theme for both the franchise and really for RPGs in general, which is the optional boss that's far stronger than the boss it's preceding, or sometimes maybe even the final boss of the game, these these optional things. Again, a technology thing in this one, something that kind of stands out because it's a, a machine in an otherwise mostly fantasy world, but... Yeah, Warmech shows up as the very first version of that thing that would become more famous, I think, from the weapons in 7. And even though there are plenty of optional bosses before that. And I, as a young role-playing game neophyte in the mid-90s, I decided to go out and gear up and, and level up. And 
then I've never seen the thing again. Even I've played this game several times now. I've played remakes several times now. I have never, ever seen War Mech again. <laughs> it's just that first time. Yeah, that was it. That's perfect. So you fight Tiamat, difficult boss, but finally you, you beat the last fiend. You beat the fiend of error. You get your adamant. In, in the 90s version, it's called adamant. Uh, it is eventually changed to adamantite, which allows the dwarven blacksmith to make the Excalibur. And yeah, and then there's just one more thing to do. Yeah. Yeah, just one more tiny little 2,000-year time loop to figure out. Look, <laughs> it's, it's just one, you go talk to the sages, and they just, like, well done, Warriors of Light, well done. We just have one more thing to ask of you. And yeah, you got to go back to the Temple of Fiends or the Chaos Shrine, depending on which version you have. And you think, why do I have to go there? Oh yeah, that's where Garland tried to knock us all down. He did indeed. He yeah, he 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 gave it a shot. Didn't work out for him. Turns out worked out for him better than we thought. You go back to the Temple of Fiends, and you are transported two thousand years in the past. And then you've got this epic dungeon crawl where you have to refight each of the four fiends who are more powerful than they were before. And then finally, finally, you have to fight Chaos. And Chaos is one bad-looking dude. Yeah. Got them devil horns. The Yoshitaka Amano art in all its gold and brown. Uh, except for that he is golden brown. He looks an awful lot like Tim Curry's demon in Legend. He is mm. one scary-looking dude. And he is a tough fight. Especially given the standards of the time. He, he's he got all the spells. He's got a bunch of special spells that can kill you, the entire party or most of the party in one hit. He will heal himself completely. He, you just, it's just a grind. It's just, you gotta fight and fight and fight until you're done. And by today's standards, I think most gamers could handle it. But certainly by the standards of the time, this took me a couple tries. Yeah, it was an epic battle, and it was purposefully made to be hard, harder than than boss battles often are in games today. And then that's, uh, that's basically it, except that in the epilogue, you find out what happened. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and what happened is basically this. Garland was disillusioned with his position and found his way to the Temple of Chaos, or the Shrine of the Four Fiends, if I want to mix my uh, yeah. remakes. And there was possibly some influence on him to make him become disillusioned and steal the princess and so on. And when, when he was defeated by the Warriors of Light, before he died, he was transported back in time 2,000 years by the power of the Four Fiends. And that's how he began to become Chaos. And he sent the Four Fiends forward to wreak havoc and rot the earth and still the wind and so on. And so the Four Fiends being in the present, of course, they, they drained the light from the elemental crystals and sent it back in time to Garland so that he could gain his power over 2,000 years to become Chaos. And then the Warriors of Light defeat them, and then they go back in time and, and find Chaos there. And the loop just keeps going like that until the Warriors of Light are able to finally defeat Chaos. So you wouldn't need to go back in time to defeat the Four Fiends and Chaos if Chaos hadn't sent the Four Fiends forward, but if he hadn't sent the Four Fiends forward, 
how would there ever have been a need for the Warriors of Light to, to defeat the Four Fiends, Drew? This is a 2,000-year time loop, isn't it? It is a 2,000-year time loop that seems unbreakable, though they seem to suggest that by defeating Chaos, somehow it is broken, and that then, therefore, the memories of the, the Warriors of Light kind of fade. Nobody ever knows that they existed. But that presents a whole time travel paradox in and of itself. How can some people who never existed solve this solve this big problem? But I, I don't think that there is any specific part of this that does not work. Now I'm not certain that it does work. Uh, but I think <laughs> but I think that's one of the things that's so great again about the franchise in general. And first we've established again another commonality of the franchise, which is when you get to the end game, it's not going to be and then they beat the bad guy and everyone was happy and they won. Like it's always, right. you know, a, a god gets involved or time travel gets involved. Or it gets Necron. really or, ne or Necron gets involved. And so we've got this early establishment that stuff gets weird. But I think, again, this is one of those things that early on, and as we talked about, we played beginning to end, certainly while paying attention, some of the later games in the franchise first. But this was, I think, a big moment for us in terms of how do we even engage with our, our stories. I saw, as, as we're recording this podcast, I watched the film Blade Runner 2049 just before we came on and did this. And as we were walking out of the theater, I heard a woman go, I didn't care for it. It didn't make any sense. And I just wanted to stop and say, now, did it not make sense or is it not immediately clear what it was trying to say and do because those are two completely different things and i think it's something we often screw up when evaluating film television music uh certainly video games which is this feeling of that didn't make sense to me or i'm not sure i got it versus there's a fundamental flaw in this and it doesn't make sense it doesn't work and i think this 2000 time loop is one of the best examples of a storytelling mechanism that could feel like it comes out of nowhere, but it's not deus ex machina. Right. Well, and and they definitely hint at it because they, they talk a lot about prophecy in this game. And once you know about the 2,000-year time loop, it becomes much more clear where the prophecy came from because this either has happened before or they've seen some part of it before. The prophecy of the Warriors of Light appearing and defeating the fiends, well... They knew it was going to happen because it's been happening. There's been this time loop. So, yeah, I agree. Right. There, there was a hint of it coming. And, and furthermore, you and I have often discussed and or argued about plot. I am of the mm. opinion that plot is king because if your plot does not work, then people don't care about your, your themes. Whereas you, if I understand correctly, have a different opinion. A little bit, though. I think the the way you talked me into it, I, I just took your analogy and I put it on a chessboard because to me, plot is king is too strong if you're thinking about it in terms of government and what a king has the power to do. But if you think about it on a chessboard, I love plot is king much better in that way because I think you're right that theme and characters and all of those things can't stand up if your plot literally does not work, if it doesn't make sense, if it has fundamental problems, the same way you can't win 
a game of chess if you lose your king. In fact, that's literally how you lose the game. But the king is not the most powerful or the most important piece toward winning the game. And to me, I think theme, characters, ideas are much more integral to whether or not a story has, if you want to draw a straight analogy, one has succeeded, has gone above and beyond in, in a way that is moving or interesting to me. And if there are a couple of moments of the plot that are there just to be convenient, then I'm fine with it. If it's just a matter of plot convenience, I, I typically don't care about those kinds of things. But if there is a fundamental flaw, you're right. It undercuts everything else. If you're not telling a cohesive story. Uh, I just think in general, audiences, especially Western audiences, have replaced, I'm not sure I get this, with this makes no sense and is therefore dumb. It is therefore illogical just because I'm not willing to do the work to, and, and a lot of people feel that way. I shouldn't have to work. Somebody said that to me some recently with something I wrote about, and they said, I shouldn't have to put in the work to understand what you were saying. And I've just never understood being that kind of an audience for anything. I mean, here we are doing research to do a podcast about a 30-year-old game that we want to talk about in depth. But so that's just kind of the way I think about these types of things, you know, I, I would rather do the work if something seems somewhat interesting rather than shut off and go, uh, I don't get it. Therefore, it doesn't work. Right. Uh, so would it be uh, safe to say, Mr. Creaseman, that you and I <laughs> have come to the conclusion that uh, plot may not be king, but it is chess king? It is chess king. It absolutely is. And and I probably oversold in some of our conversations that I quite frankly wish we had recorded back in the day uh, about this stuff because we really did work from two different sides of it and come to pretty much an agreement on what we were talking about. And, and quick aside, I think a lot of it surrounded the film Suicide Squad, of yeah. all things, the, the DC flick, because it has very real... It like teeters on that line of having... Plot problems that I absolutely don't care about, and a couple where I go, uh, but that does kind of undercut your central theme. Right. <laughs> and there, there are some plot problems that I can't get over, but I can acknowledge that there are some fantastic themes. And if it had just managed to pull together and to tighten up certain things, it could have been brilliant. Just right. didn't quite get there because of different problems on different aspects. Either way, uh, yeah, that might be one of our theses going forward that plot is chess king and that themes and that if you can have a chess king that can stand up, your themes and characters uh, really can carry the day. Right. So so in my takeaway from Final Fantasy one here is that the the reason why the 2000 time loop is an important and interesting thematic point is that it suggests this whole other problem of we've got blank slate characters who don't speak their own dialogue or have their own motivations or uh, develop at all. That That's all done by the villains in this particular game because our main characters are silent protagonists, but not even silent protagonists like with the charisma of, say, someone like Chrono from Chrono Trigger. It's like he has clear motivations and desires, I think. And in this, we don't have that. Instead, what we have is this story now where we wonder to what extent we as the player 
ever had the freedom to choose what we were going to do. At the very beginning, they say, you're the warriors of light and you're going to fulfill a prophecy. And then we spend however long it takes to beat the first one, 30, 40 hours, fulfilling the exact prophecy that we read about in that opening title card splash screen. So speaking of free will and predestination, Drew, mm-hmm. as a high school librarian... I did librarian, a little college thesis on this. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say another topic we're, we're both into quite a bit. The topic I think we're going to wrap up on is this one. As a high school librarian, I have the opportunity to buy books for the library, and I do, of course, buy the hot titles, you know, whatever is popular at the moment, and I buy the classics. But I also have certain latitude to branch out in different directions. And one of the things I like very much is a book series called the Blackwell Philosophy and Pop Culture Series. And they've got a book, Final Fantasy and Philosophy. So if you are at all interested in philosophy and you've got a strong background in certain pop culture phenomena or franchises, you can use this book series to help you get a grasp on philosophy. And they don't, I mean, some of them get real deep into the philosophy part, but a lot of it's sort of introductory. So I emailed you the eighth article in this book titled, The Four Warriors of Light Save the World, But They Don't Deserve Our Thanks. And this is an essay largely about free will versus predestination. So, Drew, you were a philosophy major, right? Yes. Tell me what you think. How do you view Final Fantasy through the lens of predestination versus free will? It's an absolutely fascinating question because I think that given just the story, and this is something I did write a college thesis on. In fact, I had a professor who was very big on the notion of there is no such thing as free will, everything is predestined, everything is predetermined, and this is very popular among a a lot of philosophical thinkers these days, and I fall on the other side of that. I think I wrote like a 15-page essay at one point on free will does exist. Choices are real and choices have actual consequences. That being said, it is unclear to me whether or not the warriors of light ever do exhibit anything resembling free will. In fact, it it makes a very interesting conversation on the the very nature of playing video games. In fact, I think, and I'm going to completely spoil this right now, so if anyone has ever played Shadow of the Colossus, just skip forward a couple of minutes if you don't want it spoiled. But again, a pretty old game here, which does a fantastic job of this, which has you... In a video game, you control the actions of the protagonist. It's not the same thing as reading a novel. And therefore, the free will of the characters is often directly mirrored by the free will of the player. The difference being, what are you going to do? Put the controller down and not finish the game? You, In a way, you are a bystander because you want to see the story play out. You can't finish Shadow of the Colossus if you correctly, after defeating the first Colossus, come to the conclusion that what you're doing is not right. You should not be killing these majestic, one-of-a-kind beings. And the story, in fact, makes that clear by the end. Not only that, but it makes it clear that you had no choice. You had to do it. You were being controlled. Which then has this really fascinating impact of making you, as the 
person holding the video game controller feel like you had no choice, that your actions were being controlled. And it does, I mean, I'm not sure there is an answer. I thought the guys did a great job in their back and forth, arguing, I think, strongly that the Warriors of Light display no characteristics of what we would think of free will action, actions being taken, you know, even if you as the player, you even said at one point that that Astos tells you that he's the real king and the warriors of light are convinced, but maybe you as the player aren't. But you as the player have to play along, creating your own sense of dramatic irony in a way. It's friggin' brilliant. (laughs) It's it's mind-blowingly interesting. And then the question isn't just, did they have free will or not, but do they deserve any thanks or are they trapped? Were they born to save the world the same way that the number two was invented to come after the number one? So they had no choice. And and not only that, but you haven't really accomplished it. All you've done is fulfill the role you were literally born to fill no different than a machine might be. And that's part of the reason why I think I reflexively pull away from that ideology. And also because of future Final Fantasy games, their central themes oftentimes seem to be more about how your friends or your family or the people closest to you give you your existence and your freedom of will. And that they seem to think that things like love or whatever it may be can overcome even the as you were talking about the epilogue a word i used incorrectly earlier in in the last (laughs) podcast but the the epilogue here does suggest that you've broken the time loop which to me if that's that's how i read the end of the game is Mm -hmm. that the four warriors of light break the time loop but then kind of disappear and or never existed well, the, the epilogue implies that they do continue to exist, but they're the only ones who remember what they did. So they certainly get no okay. thanks. And I, I really love that, but I think that's why I finished on the opposite side of the authors of the piece, where they say, but they deserve no thanks. I, I love stories of silent heroes, of the people who... Do. There's a great episode of The West Wing where they save Social Security, but they can't tell anybody they right. did it. yeah. I love that. A few other stories that come to mind that have this dynamic that I really love are Star Wars Rogue One and the final flight of the Osiris from the Animatrix. Yeah. So even if they were simply fulfilling their roles as predestined characters, even if they were doing good, even if they were doing the right thing, knowing that they could only do the right thing, I think that that choice is still important. I think their essay also tends to ignore the nature of the time loop in that, you know, there were decisions made before and after and during that because of the nature of paradox still required choices to be made. And I really like your example of Shadow Over the Colossus or Shadow of the Colossus because you you said, what are you going to do? Put the controller down and not play anymore? And that's exactly what I did. Yeah, yeah. So knowing what the end of Shadow of the Colossus is, I feel like I won that game because I I can't remember if I did feel, kill the first Colossus or not, but certainly in my attempt to do so or having done so, I was like, I don't think this game is for me. I'm not interested in killing this giant, basically a like a giant cow or something that's not doing anything. It's out in the middle of nowhere. It's hurting nobody. What am I doing? 
because right, a voice told me to. No, mm-hmm. I'm not doing this. It's not the game for me. And I think in a similar way, you could make that choice about, about Final Fantasy. You could choose as the controller, as the hand of fate, not to save the world. I don't know why you would, but you could mm-hmm. make the choice. So in a sense, there is a... Even if the game, there are only certain choices to make in order to complete the game, within the within the existence of that world, within that universe, they they still made choices, and the people around them, especially Matoya, had to make choices. Lucan had to make choices. The King of Corneria had to make choices. So, even if those choices were predetermined, not everybody could have known that they had to make these choices in order for the time loop to be destroyed and for peace to come back to this particular world right you know i dig on all of that that's one of the reasons why i love this stuff so much and there's a a moment in the third matrix film or no it's at the end of the second and people didn't like the second and third matrix movies i loved it because they dive almost I know. They dive so heavily into this stuff, though. And I don't think a lot of people realize that at the core of that story is this question. Again, I'm about to spoil the entire Matrix franchise. So if you haven't seen the films, <laughs> you can fast forward. First of all, I don't know what's wrong with you. And second of all, uh, spoilers. There could be new but, people. There could be people born after. Sure, sure. Yeah, check out the Matrix and then come back. In case you forget. That's, I know, I forget that sometimes, that this is some of the stuff people are experiencing for the first time. But in that story, at some point, it's revealed that everything that you're witnessing has happened before. Again, exactly like the first Final Fantasy. This has all happened before. There, there's a line in, was it, Battlestar Galactica? This has all happened before yeah. and this will all happen again. Yeah. Right? And so each of the ones before... Neo made a particular choice to go and fight the war and it always ends in the same way and then they would reset. But in this particular one, Neo chooses love. Again, something that Final Fantasy often uses as a thematic element of something that can break a cycle like this, a choice you can make. And uh, there are certain philosophers that will say, just because a choice is always the right one to make and one that the that a good person would make 99% of the time doesn't mean that there still is not a choice. You still have to choose between right and wrong. And so, a lot of times it's not even as easy or simple as choosing between right and wrong. In fact, I think you could argue that Neo makes the more selfish choice instead of going to the front lines of the war. He chooses to try and go save his girlfriend. But that ends up being the thing that the machines could not predict. They they had predestined his action to do something. And six or seven other times, the predestination turned out right. The Matrix is a giant argument in favor of free will. The very last line when Neo and Smith are fighting in the last one in the rain, the big epic thing, and and Agent Smith says, why, Mr. Anderson, why do you persist? It may seem like a stupid line, but Neo says, because I choose to. Yeah. I have a choice. And I think on that level, yes, our warriors of light have a choice. And they make the right one, even if it was the only one. Just because the right choice is the only choice doesn't mean that you still didn't have to actively decide to do it. And do they then deserve our thanks? 
Yeah, yeah, they do, but they can't. But we can't know to thank them. That's what's right. so great about it. That's why I love it so much because well, they, the, the it, people it's of kind the world, of like, can't know to mm-hmm. thank them, but you and I can. And one of the things Final right. Fantasy does, and it does it in at least in the Dawn of Souls remake, it the epilogue mentions you, and we'll see this a couple times in Final Fantasy. Mm. Uh, it, it references the player at least a little bit, and like in in one half of a line, so so it does recognize. The role of the player after a fashion, the the hand of fate, the the hand on the controller. You know, we did choose to play the game, and even though we're saving a fictional world, uh, and you know, I've saved it many many times now. Uh, yeah, I wonder. You know, are we also to be thanked? I don't know. Right. Yeah, that that's something I think will will come up more and more through throughout the franchise, and especially as you jump into stuff like some of the some of the side things. Well, there's a lot of that in Final Fantasy VII, honestly. But I was thinking, I don't know why I jumped straight to Chrono Trigger and Chrono Cross on that one. Chrono Cross in particular, because choices yeah. are a big deal in those games, and and what do you decide to do, and do do you the player have a responsibility to like play the game in a right. moralistically upright fashion. Yeah, <laughs> like what? Absolutely. But yeah. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening and thank you to everyone who has reached out to us. Feel free to let us know what we missed, got wrong, or should have mentioned by following us on Twitter at FFWeeklyPod or sending an email to FinalFantasyWeekly at gmail.com. You can also visit us on Patreon at patreon.com slash ffweekly for more episodes and content, and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Join us next time when we discuss Amano, Uematsu, and the frustration of beating a dead goblin. again for listening and don't forget to subscribe on this new feed over here on anchor or apple podcasts or spotify we're trying to get it up on things like stitcher and all of that as well should be on everything soon Uh, but it is a new feed so make sure you've got it on your regular podcast app and check out the patreons patreon.com slash ff weekly and patreon.com slash dc productions